first 19 chapters of Leviticus last week at our house, and um, we're going to pick up in chapter 20 uh, just to very briefly review. You remember kind of the pattern of what we had studied, that the first seven chapters were sort of a manual of sacrifices, both as far as the offerer and as the priest were concerned, talking about the different sacrifices, what they were for, the procedures, and that was necessary to begin with that because much of the rest of the book has information that that utilizes those different kinds of sacrifices. And then the priests were consecrated and ordained and began began to function as priests in chapters 8 and 9, and then in chapter 10, two of the five total priests were destroyed by fire from heaven because they did not follow proper procedures in the offering of the incense. And uh, then we moved into a section that really were the laws of cleanness. Uh, We talked about the food laws, the laws of childbirth, leprosy, various discharges, and uh, kind of the focal point of the whole book, Leviticus chapter 16, with the procedures of that special day of atonement where the sanctuary was purified and where the sins of the people were atoned for. Um, and, and it was just a very special, solemn day in the seventh month and the tenth day of the month. Then as we get into chapter 17 and following, we kind of shift gears. We had looked more at holiness in worship in the first 16 chapters We move more into holiness in life and the various uh, laws that God has, not so much about their sacrifices, but about what they do and what they shouldn't do in their life. In chapter 17, some uh, prohibitions about the eating of blood. Then in chapter 18, which is going to connect very closely with what we'll study first here in chapter 20, you had laws regarding uh, immorality, particularly against sexual sin, incest, and other things, idolatry, some of the kinds of things that they especially would have difficulty with. In chapter 19, you really had principles mostly of how to treat each other. Uh, That's where you have the uh, passage Jesus quoted, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, and much emphasis, as there is in these chapters, on the laws being because... I am the Lord your God. Now in chapter 20, we're mostly going to see the punishments that God lays down for breaking the laws that he established in chapter 18. And uh, I think you can see that God wanted to put some teeth into these prohibitions. That, you know, when people broke God's law, punishment was deserved. And uh, remember that this was a national law. This was the, the constitution, practically, for the nation of Israel. And so God is telling them what to do with criminals. And, you know, we find out that God's view of criminals is, and criminals against his law, is that they ought to be punished. Um, and we're going to see how, how he meets out that punishment. It'll be interesting to even look at the different kinds of punishment, uh, the variations in the degree of punishment and so forth based upon uh, various infractions. 
So are there questions or comments before we start into chapter 20? Okay. Would somebody read chapter 20, verses 1 to 8? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall say to the sons of Israel, from the sons of Israel, or from the aliens sojourning in Israel, who gives any of his offspring to Molech, which shall surely be put to death. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will also set my face against that man, and, I, and will cut him off from among his people, because he has given some of his offering offspring to Moloch, so as to defile my sanctuary, to profane my holy name. If the people of the land, however, should ever disregard that man, when he gives any of his offspring to Moloch, so as not to put him to death, then I myself will set my face against that man, and will, and against his family, and I will cut off from among the people both, both him and all those who play the harlot after him, by playing the harlot with Moloch. As for the person who turns to mediums and spirits to play harlot after them, I will also set my face against that person, and will cut him off from among his people. You shall consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the, I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Okay. The common theme uh, of the crimes in this part are, is what? idolatry and pagan practices. And um, particularly in 2 through 5, he was dealing with what? Sacrificing your kids. Sacrificing your kids to the god Molech who demanded child sacrifice. Um, how did the Lord feel about that? They deserve death. Absolutely. Who was supposed to put them to death? Yeah. How? Stoners. <laughs> The, the penalty for uh, idolatry, for sacrificing your children to, Mo, uh, to Molech, was to, to be stoned with stones. That's how God thought about that. Does that seem a little extreme? Shouldn't. For one thing, we would see, well, if you sacrifice your children, you ought to be killed. The principle back in Genesis 9, the one who takes a man's life ought to have his life taken. I think there's something even maybe more serious about this. Because worshiping another god is really what crime, if we were looking at a national crime? Treason. Treason, absolutely. They were committed to God, and this was a violation of that commitment. This was treason, and we would generally see treason as punishable by death, even in our uh, way of looking at that. Um, what would happen if the people didn't stone the one that offered his children to Molech? God would make sure that he was taken Yes. God would be the punisher. He would cut the man off from the people. I'm not sure if that means God would kill him or God would uh, exclude him from the camp, but God would deal with it. God is going to see to it that he's punished one way or another, but his intention is that the people... Take the man and stone him. What thoughts and comments do you have through verse 5 and this uh, idea of the punishment to the man who offers his offspring to Molech? Boy. I, I think it's significant that God is telling them to do that. You know, it, it's important for the people to take their stand for God and for what's right. Uh, I mean, I, I hadn't thought of this being 
uh, uh, treason, but I, I can see that that is, that is the point here. It is against God, and the people need to stand up for God in that. What is hard about seeing the, the people doing this? What would be, what would be difficult for the people in, in, in actually carrying this out? I, they might know the person, might be close friends of the person, Shay. They're going to kill him. I mean, maybe that would be on their conscience, maybe. I mean, it probably shouldn't be because he has sinned, but it's still, if, if they didn't, I mean, there was the type of people that just did not like killing, I mean, it would probably be on the fight to haunt them for a while. It just doesn't quite seem right, does it? You know, to kill somebody? I think we often think that way. What does that show you about us? You know, sometimes we can almost have this uh, attitude of being more righteous than God. You know, we're just above what God says. Now, I think what that shows you is that our mentality is not as righteous as God's is. You know, we have a whole lot of sympathy with sinners. Because after all, we are one. And so we tend not to see sin as being that bad. And to sort of compromise the standards. And we just need to change our way of looking at the sinfulness of sin. And, the, and, and what is deserved in this situation. I mean, even in our country, you know, we're in chapter 20, the first part of it. In, in our country, um, there's a lot of sympathy for, for, for national criminals. And a lot of desire to, to make sure that you know, maybe the criminals aren't hurt. You know, you wouldn't want to do something that, that might, uh, you know, be really, t- you know, too disagreeable to them. And God looks at things differently. God looks at the violated standard of righteousness and holiness, the outraged justice, and he sees that the justice and the righteousness demands that those who break God's law are punished. That's the way that ought to be. We may not see it that way, but that's because we're not very holy. We're not very just. And we need to change our view and begin to think like God thinks. But it is exactly what he requires here. He requires them to stone the man who offered his children to Molech. Observations. We read this and it looks so simple. You would think all these people worshiping God and all of a sudden this one straggler runs off and offers a child to Molech. Molech and they, they stone him. But, but when we read them through the history, what happens is it's the whole nation that does it. So they all gradually gravitate to that, that point and they don't, they don't see it. So then it's like a major deal to find anyone that will be uh, on God's side to, to deal with that. There had to be a first one. Yeah. And it may be <laughs> that one of the problems was they didn't do this with the first ones and the little leaven leavens the whole lump. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that he talks about their silence, that they just close their eyes to it. It's not that they're actively supporting him, it's that they choose to ignore it or not do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. They disregard the man. They don't, they don't uh, you know, care. They neglect to observe this. 
we need to be very careful that we are as strict as what the Lord commands us to be. If we aren't, there will be problems. What about this idea of, you know, sacrificing children? Doesn't that seem really hard to believe people would do that? Seems kind of extreme to have a God who who expected that. (laughs) On the other hand, I wonder how many people sacrifice their children in another way. They sacrifice their children to the gods of success and popularity and, and education and, and whatever else. You know, it's easy to um, want our children to be something that's going to take them away from God. And that may not seem as extreme, but it may have the same results. So it might be worth just giving some thought to that. Other thoughts and comments through five. Was the you know, I often look at that where he cuts going to cut them off. Sometimes I think it means he's going to kill them. Sometimes not. Especially in the first part, he says, "If you kill him, I'll cut him off." If you don't kill him, no. He says, "If you do, the first, the first, if you do, and I will." Okay. Yeah. Surely be put to death and stone him. Yeah, he will I, also. I will cut also him off. set yes. my face yes. against him and cut him off. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. I mean, I read several different things, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure to what extent this this may, it may not mean exactly the same thing every time. Certainly, cut off from God, but what specifically God does? Does somebody have a good answer to that? Adam, mine elaborates on his plan. It's bad. It's bad. <laughs> Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, mine talks about including his clan and his family in that cutting off. Do all the translations do that? Uh, mine doesn't in three, but mine then in five it does. Yeah. Set my face against that man and against his family. And I will cut off from among their people, both him and all those who play the harlot after him. So it would be those who followed him in, in being, you know, idolatrous. I like Adam's answer. <laughs> Good answer. What about six? What's he? Who's he condemning here? Superstitions. Pagan. Yeah. Pagan practices. Yes. Uh, turning to uh, idolatry and other gods and other uh, you know spiritual sources for guidance for information. Because why would you go to a medium or a spirit? Yeah. About what? Anything you doubt about God. Yeah. You don't think he answers. (laughs) Exactly. Answers. Things that you have doubts about. Maybe wanting to know the future. Wanting to know what you ought to do. Wanting to contact a dead prophet. Uh, Well, uh, they they did occasionally. Look at the Witch of Endor. And... uh, that sometimes that was the idea. Sometimes it was that they would be in communication, so to speak, with the spirits of the dead, and that they would give them, you know, information. And, and so it's the idea of trying to find out some some things that would guide them and direct them and help them know what they ought to do. Now, when you think about it that way, what was so bad about consulting the mediums and the spiritists? They didn't trust God's revelation. That's exactly right. God was supposed to uh, have enough wisdom 
to guide them sufficiently. It's kind of like 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. The scriptures are sufficient to guide us into all good work. We don't need anything else. And when we think we do, when we think, well, you know, I know God revealed some things, but that's not enough for me. I've got I've to find out some, some real information here. I need to, I need to know more. Well, that's not uh, being satisfied with what God has revealed. So that's a, that's a real issue, a real problem. I want you to notice something. Look at 6, and then look at 27. What's the difference between the person of 6 and the person in verse 27? Yes, you've got the difference between the user and the pusher. <laughs> and who was to be punished more severely by the people? Obviously, the pusher. Yeah. We would understand that. We would see that you know, the person who actively does it is even more severely to be condemned and to be punished than the person who, who turns to them. Uh, but both are... Uh, against God. God's going to set his face against them. God will cut them off. God's people were to be a holy people. They were to be consecrated. They were to obey what God says. And notice in 7 and 8 the reason. For I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Which is the first of seven times in I believe I'm right, seven times in chapters 20 to 22, that you have that phrase, I am the Lord who sanctifies you, or something very similar to that. Since God's the sanctifier, they should live holy lives. Why well, comments and questions through verse 8? All right, there are some other sins that deserve punishment. Again, these closely parallel the list of sins in chapter uh, 18. And so we ought to uh, you know, think about uh, that chapter and what we knew about that chapter as we look at this. Um, but uh, chapter 20, verses 9 to 21. If there's... If there's anyone who curses his father or his mother, he shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother, his blood guiltiness is upon him. <coughs> if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. If there is a man who lies with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who lies with his daughter-in-law, both of them shall surely be put to death. They have committed incest. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who marries a woman and her mother, it is immorality. Both he and they shall be burned with fire, so that there will be no immorality in your midst. If there is a man who lies with an animal, he shall surely be put to death. You shall also kill the animal. If there is a woman who approaches any animal to mate with it, 
You shall kill the woman and the animal. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. If there's a man who takes his sister and his father's daughter or his mother's daughter so that he sees her nakedness and she sees his nakedness, it is a disgrace and they shall be cut off in the sight of the sons of their people. He has uncovered his sister's nakedness. He bears his guilt. If there's a man who lies with a menstruous woman and uncovers her nakedness, he has laid bare her flow and she has exposed the flow of her blood. Thus both of them shall be cut off from among their people. You shall also not uncover the nakedness of your mother's sister or of your father's sister. For such a one has made naked his blood relative. They shall bear their guilt. If there's a man who lies with his uncle's wife, he has uncovered his uncle's nakedness. They shall bear their sin. They shall die childless. If there's a man who takes his brother's wife, it is abhorrent. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They will be childless. Now, there's an obvious lesson in all of this, and that is that God regulates sexual practices. That God is the God who tells us under what circumstances that we can be involved with someone in that way. And the idea of uncovering the nakedness is what we looked at in chapter 18. It really involves uh, sexual uh, behavior. And we need to see God as the one who has the right to tell us exactly with whom we can have that kind of, of closeness. God is the one who created man and woman. He's the one who gave us that function. And he's the one who regulates and tells us under what circumstances that we can, uh, t- can do that. Um, but he starts in verse 9, a little differently. The rest of it is, is all uh, involving <coughs> sexual sin. But in verse 9, who is he condemning? And what was the punishment for that? <coughs> death. Wow. Can we institute that today? <laughs> I'm not sure we want to. <laughs> we might have a considerably smaller class. You know, uh, God was very strict about the respect owed to parents. Father or mother. Uh, <coughs> and, wow. We just wouldn't think about uh, this is being that serious. Uh, in fact, did you notice kind of how these are grouped? 9 to 16, the offenses here were punishable how? Death. In 17 and 18, what's the punishment? Cut off. In 19, what's the punishment? Bear their guilt. And in 20 and 21, what's the punishment? Die childless. So you see sort of gradations of punishment, different punishments for different kinds of crime. Now, in 10 to 16, you have uh, sexual sins that are punishable by death. Uh, You have um, sins of of adultery in verse 10. Um, You have various sins of, of incest in in verses 11 and 12, uh, you have the sin of homosexuality in uh, 13. And notice, and this is uh, uh, very uh, common uh, in Leviticus, or, or it was true also in chapter 18, that he specifically says in 13, both of them have committed a detestable act. 
he sort of adds that point that homosexual practices are abhorrent to God. They're detestable. All these are wrong. But he sort of, you know, adds that statement, how wrong that is. And we can see that from how God created. God did not create another man for Adam. He created a woman. And that's the way God intends for that to be. We're in a culture where we have to say that. And we have to stress that. And it is, I want to say a couple things about that, because that is is more and more, at least people I talk to, is, is a problem. I mean, we are in a culture where homosexuality is promoted more and more. And so we will have to deal with that more and more, in, in either in the temptations we face or in those that we work with. And it seems to me like it would be appropriate to parallel this with, say, the sin of adultery. Um, where do we draw the line when it comes to adultery? Well, we know that committing the act of adultery is wrong. That's sinful. We also know in Matthew 5 that to look to lust, to sort of fantasize and enjoy mentally adulterous uh, ideas is also wrong. Is it wrong to be tempted to lust? No. Temptation is not wrong. There probably most uh, people would feel the temptation if, if there's some uh, you know, inappropriately dressed uh, girl or, or maybe just the, the thought comes. The devil puts in our, in our mind the desire, the temptation, the, the thing that, wow, you know, I would like to think about that. I'd like to do what David did. I'd like to, to look. And as a, a Christian, we have to fight off that temptation. We have to turn our mind to something else. We wouldn't consider it wrong to be tempted. We'd be consider it wrong to give in and lust or practice the adultery. It seems to me like it's the same thing with homosexuality. That there may very well be people who are tempted to lust, and to fulfill that desire to be with another man. But that what has to be done is, that has to be dealt with in a biblical way, turning from the, the lustful thought and turning from the lustful practice to, to the Lord. You know, a, a, a desire or a, uh, you know, a temptation to, to think or practice homosexuality is not wrong. The wrong is in the lust and, and the fulfilling of that. And we've got to draw the line. We have to make the choice. We decide, <coughs> I'm not going to do that. Some people are big on the idea that, well, you know, I was just kind of born with that tendency. Well, I don't know about all that. But we would generally think, uh, whether it's true or not, that we were sort of born with some other tendencies. You know, I mean, do you know people who sort of feel like, well, you know, I was just born kind of with a tendency to lose my temper. You know, I'm, I'm Irish or I'm redheaded or whatever. Well, I don't know, but what there are people who struggle more with that than other people do. I don't know exactly why. 
I don't know whether they're born with that or whether they, you know, through their environment or whatever. But some people, you know, the temptation to lose their temper is probably stronger and they probably have to fight that one more than they do some others. There are probably some people who have to fight more lust and even desire to commit sexual immorality, adultery, fornication, things like that, than what other people do. I mean, I think we all see that for some of us, you know, one temptation is more of a battle for us. And for other people, it's another temptation that just really gets them down. That's okay. Uh, you know, and, and if, if it is that for, for, for you, you know, the temptation to, to lust and to act on the basis of homosexual, homosexual temptations is stronger, and that's a harder battle, well, maybe it is. But we have to make the right choice, just as we would with any other sin. We have to choose to do what God says and not give in to the temptation, even though we may find that temptation a harder one to deal with than what we find some other temptation. Do you have any comments or questions on that idea? I would agree with you. I don't know. Is there a passage in the Old Testament that specifically mentions women with women? I don't think so. Uh, I don't know if these, by analogy, would be applicable to that, and perhaps it wasn't as common, and so it wasn't specified. Romans 1 clearly clears that up for us, but I'm not sure how they would have looked at that at it. But I think within the context of this chapter, what's being said is there's an appropriate way. And, and I think that it, it would surely be understood that, that there is one appropriate way. And, you know, I view this as here are a list of some things that you'll probably see, you know, in your lifetime. It doesn't matter. It's still wrong, still detestable. And so I think they would make that application, you know, that, you know, whatever other horrible things in that same genre could be discovered or whatever, there's, there is a correct way. And I think when Christ was asked about marriage, he didn't go through, in the New Testament, Matthew 19, he did not go through and say, you know, list a, a bunch of other things. He said, here's what God set up. One man, one woman. And that is a good point. I think the creation itself is the fundamental principle. And, you know, as we would say, that you know, God did not create Adam and Steve. You know, God didn't create Eve and Evelyn, you know, or whatever. That, that we would see that from that, you know, by, by that principle, by that analogy, the lesbianism would be wrong as well. I have no idea, but I wonder if, you know, in the ancient world, perhaps lesbianism was not as common as homosexuality. I suspect it's not quite as common even today, although it certainly exists. I don't know. But, but at any rate, I think that principle would deal with it. And, and certainly it is helpful for us that we do have that specified in Romans 1, so that would not be an issue as far as we're concerned. But it's a good point. Adam. Other thoughts or questions? It doesn't seem also that he addresses the man more in, in everything. 
Yes. Where the principal may apply to both, but oftentimes it's addressed to the mayor. That's a good point as well. That's probably true. I wouldn't doubt that. So perhaps, perhaps we ought to see man here as almost encompassing man or woman <coughs> in a parallel thing. Although he will, when it comes to the uh, the uh, bestiality in 15 and 16, deal with it from both sides. But other times he, he wouldn't. So, you know, that may be. Other thoughts and comments through through 16? <coughs> right. It seems like everything from 10 forward deals with um, a man committing adultery with someone who's either married or a relative. Um, is there any place in Leviticus where it talks about two unmarried people, man and woman? What the punishment will be for that? I don't think in Leviticus it does. <coughs> Boyd, do you have an answer to that? Well, I don't know where, but I think that there are places. There are places, yeah. but I'm no, not. You don't think it's in Leviticus? I think, you might be right. I think Exodus does. Exodus, yeah. Okay, well, that may be what I think. I think that may be the case. I don't think Leviticus does. <coughs> Shane. When you read in verse 9 about everyone curses father and mother shall surely put that. And he said that God takes this very serious. But yes, we are to respect our mother and father because they have authority over us. And it's very serious to curse them. But how much more serious is it to curse God because he is even over that? And so, I mean, it's, it should be the same way. I mean, yes, we can <coughs> curse our mother and father because it's a serious sin. But how much more serious is it to curse God? He should have even greater respect as our greater father. Obviously, all of this goes back to respecting him. And uh, we really do these other things out of our respect for him. I mean, the, the not cursing father and mother is really because we respect God. Could you elaborate on what it means to curse father and mother? I wondered if somebody would ask that. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I would think to, to uh, speak something to like uh, try to to have God condemn them or whatever. I mean, a curse is a pretty strong thing. Uh, so it's more than just speaking against. It's. I think so. I think so. Although God commands more than just not cursing them. Correct. God commands obedience and honor. But I do think this would be a pretty strong thing. You know, someone who would really just, uh, you know lash out at them with, with expressing a desire for God to condemn them. Adam? In, the, in my reading, we were going through in Genesis chapter 9, there's a Noah has an incident with one of his sons after the flood and described there is that he uh, uncovered his father's or looked upon his father's nakedness. And in this chapter, there seems to be a a connection to something beyond just a visual with uncovering the nakedness of your father. Um, and that, that, that passage in Genesis 9 is one that seemed, I, 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 didn't make a lot of sense to me unless something similar to what's being described here in chapter 20 with, with something beyond seeing something happening there. What, do you think there's any... Uh, That's a very good question. 
Uh, it seems pretty clear in Leviticus that we are dealing with sexual sin and not just some visual thing. And generally speaking, most of the commentators that I have read, while they recognize the similarity of language, would say Genesis 9 is visual and not something more than that. I'm not sure about that. Uh, the one thing about Genesis 9 is that what Shem and Japheth did was to cover up their father and to walk backwards as they did that so that they did not look upon him disrespectfully. So in the context, it almost looks like a visual thing. Uh, but clearly, there's some similarity of language. So somebody have a good comment on that? Genesis 9.21, it says that he uncovered himself. Yes. Which... So, that, so, so Ham did not uncover his nakedness. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. So it may be that there's enough difference in exact wording that, uh, that it is different. And in that Genesis 9, and we don't need to dwell on this, but when Noah woke up, he... Verse 24 says, he, he awoke from his wine and he knew what his youngest son had done to him. <coughs> that, those are good points. Um, yeah. That, that's probably worth considering. Uh, I don't have a strong conclusion on that. I, I do know that generally, at least what I've read, they seem to see a distinction, but that doesn't always mean that's right. <laughs> Other comments? Questions? <coughs> there, obviously, some of these uh, things are more difficult to discuss in mixed company. We probably won't discuss them in great uh, detail. But you have these various other kinds of actions that are also uh, punishable in some way, either by, by uh, being cut off uh, from the side of the people, or by bearing their guilt, or by uh, remaining childless. In some of these cases, at least, it would be the Lord who's doing the punishing, maybe in all of them. Certainly dying childless is not something that men uh, probably are going to uh, inflict, but God would. And uh, what I think treats sins that are perhaps um, a little less consequential than what the ones are in 9 to 16. But in all of these, we can see that when God gives an order... He has punishment. You know, sin needs to be punished. And God will see to it that that happens. And so you had in chapter 18 all these sins, all of the prohibitions, and now in chapter 20 you have what will happen when you commit those sins. Do you have any comments or questions that you want to make through verse 21? Is there, is there special <coughs> significance there in verse 14 that not, it's just not death, but they should be burned with fire? I wondered about that myself, uh, because normally, at least the best I can tell, the uh, death that the people were supposed to inflict more commonly was by stoning. So I don't know exactly why, if you marry a woman and her mother, you're to be burned alive, or maybe burned dead, I don't know. But <laughs> And the others perhaps were more stoning. I don't know. Does somebody know the answer? They're really messing with the gene pool, so... <laughs> and it's it's that it's a woman and her mother, not that there are two wives. Correct. 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 There was no punishment given, as far as I can see, 
to polygamy in and of itself. You weren't supposed to marry a woman and her sister as a rival wife or something like that. But in general, polygamy was not punished. Is there any significance to, my version uses depravity in verse 14 versus abomination? Uh, we've got immorality. I don't think that's the same as abomination, but I don't, I don't know Hebrews. That's it. Like in verse 21, that doesn't seem like a whole lot worse than any of the other ones. I don't know that I have a great answer uh, for 21. I think I can see 13 more. Um, and 21, I believe I am right that this would be during the lifetime of his brother. You know, there was a specific law in Deuteronomy 25, the Leverett Law, to marry... Um, <coughs> The, uh, for the, the wife to marry her brother-in-law if her husband had died childless. So I believe in this case this has to do with the lifetime of the brother. But I, I don't have an answer. It's interesting that the consequence to that is the opposite of what the consequence would be of marrying your dead brother's wife. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Because that was to raise up children to your dead brother. And this one, they die childless. That's a good point. In 20 and 21, this sounds like a strange question, as usual. Come to expect that. (laughs) Do they get to remain married? Just because, I mean, or is this like, is this an adultery with a particular person? Well, what I would say about this is that... No, they're not supposed to remain in this situation, chapter 18. Chapter 20 is assuming they are committing the crime. It's not authorizing them to do it, but it's just saying here are the punishments for those who break 18. So it's not licensed. (coughs) I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so at all. Uh, There's really no time when God just says, here's what's going to happen if you do this, that it's licensed. You know, but people don't always obey God, so... Well, it doesn't have to be miraculous that they die without children. I mean, if you kill them right then, they would die without children. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. Boy, this, this idea of uh, not stating any punishment for polygamy, uh, uh, I've just uh, heard it said that the act itself was the punishment. <laughs> you, you think about the ones who were uh, you, you think about Jacob and all of the problems that uh, were in his life that was, that was uh, God felt like that was the punishment enough or yeah. worse David yeah. David Solomon Yeah. well you know you stop and think about it I think there's some truth to that in terms of um, the consequences and the effects of polygamy Almost every time you see it in the Old Testament, there were bad fruits to it. Everybody's miserable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are just some advances in terms of the specific condemnations and punishments in the New Testament. 
In the Old Testament, God did not go as far. He was leading them to the point of instituting a more perfect law, more in accordance with the creation. John? That's a very good question. Here's one passage you might consider in connection with that, and that's 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. There seems to be an exclusiveness there that I think condemns polygamy. That is a good question. What about the rest of this, of these rules and laws for us today? Well, my position is that the specific laws are not applicable to us unless they are repeated in the New Testament. I believe that the, the law itself is no longer our covenant. And so we would not be bound by the specifics of these laws. Obviously there are many principles about God that are instructed, but that the specifics are applicable only if in some way the Lord indicates in the New Testament that those same principles apply. Yes, because the New Testament is not a national law. So I don't know that there is any uh, penal code other than, say, the church, uh, you know, delivering to Satan someone. But the church is not a governmental institution to actually execute corporal punishment. And so there's not that. Um, Maybe this is a study for another time, but would you also say that if we can discern precisely what is detestable to God, that is always detestable to God throughout all time. Whether or not it, you know, we have to be careful to discern, to rightly discern what is detestable to God. That may be true. I would have to check that out. That may be true. So are all of these things condemned in the Probably not all. But many of them, you know, homosexuality is, adultery is. I think incest is, from the standpoint of First Corinthians five. Shane, I was looking back in, in Genesis two, and verse twenty-four, and it says, going back to the polygamy thing, it says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, not wives. So in that kind of, like you said, kind of like a being singular, you would think that that would. And the, that would work for the Old Testament too. That it was it says wife, not wives. So I mean that didn't that didn't say that you could marry multiple wives. Good point. I would suggest that there were essentially three. If I can get this in my mind well, three um, further definitions of adultery in the New Testament that were not specifically condemned in the Old Testament. One is polygamy. Another is uh, the, the remarriage after divorce. And a third is that the definition of adultery in the Old Testament, I believe, was male-dominated. That adultery was taking another man's wife, not another woman's husband. Now that really fits with the polygamy idea. Uh, that... But, but that the adultery was when you violated the rights of a man to his wife, 
not when you violated the rights of a woman to her husband. I'm not saying in that that I think those things were really God-preferred. I don't know that polygamy was at all God-preferred in the Old Testament. I think you see the consequences indicate that wasn't really what his desire was, but that God did not specifically condemn and order the punishment of those things as he specifically condemns them in the New Testament. So I think there are I think the New Testament goes beyond the Old Testament in in, in coming to God's more perfect uh, will based on creation for man and woman. Well, I agree with that. It's the act is its own punishment. Well that may very well be. I mean I think that's a good good way to look at that. But it still would be today and yet God has gone ahead and specifically prohibited those things. So. In the New Testament, there's like sexual immorality is condemned. Yes. Does the Old Testament kind of give us an insight then into what that is? I remember thinking of of a lot of this stuff here in Leviticus as you know, sexual immorality is bad in the New Testament. Okay, what's sexual immorality? Wait, let's look and see what it was. Looking back into Leviticus, I'm not sure if it fits exactly, but as a general guide, possibly. Okay, I'll buy that. Certainly their term, sexual immorality, porneia in, in Greek or whatever that is, I'm not a Greek student either really, but, but uh, was a broad term that involved various forms of sexual immorality. We still might have certain questions that would need to be answered by looking at the New Testament. I'm not sure that I would have had conviction that incest was condemned were it not for 1 Corinthians 5, that I think specifically says that. I might then say to know what forms of, um, you know, what, what, what degrees of, of contact are forbidden, I might have to go back to the Old Testament for my definition. I can see that. I, I think that, you know, I'm not sure how else I'd do that with incest to decide, you know, Okay, between cousins, but not, you know, with a aunt or an uncle. Or What's interesting is, as descriptive as this section has been, because it's been very specific in, at points, uh, there's a lot that it left out. And as much as descriptive as the scriptures get, people can get really creative and say, what about this and what about that? And and keep going, God says, the point is holiness. You're right. And in specifics with the incest, 18.6, none of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. Because uh, the one thing that's not specified, actually two, I believe, uh, a daughter is not specified, and I don't think a sister is. And and yet I think certainly they are automatically prohibited in 18.6, and he's actually, on the basis of that, going on and saying, and also these. Certainly he's not allowing those, and he's got a blanket statement in 186 that covers that. I guess what I was trying to say was, we could could sit and and keep adding to the list and say, well, what about this, and what about this, and keep getting further away. But when you go back to what Adam's statement is, if this is the model, (laughs) and God says this is the model, any degree of away from that is not holiness. You, this isn't a super complicated thing. Sin makes it a super complicated thing. But when you look at the model and what God wants for you, 
It's really simple. And holiness is what we ought to passionately seek because God is holy. We want to be like him. Other comments and questions through 20 more? <coughs> right. Also in um, Genesis, talking about verse 21, how we got on the subject of the Leverite marriage, um, Judah's son was struck down because he didn't fulfill the right duty to his brother. Good point. Yes. That's interesting. Yeah, Genesis 38. Very good. Basically, I see there's you in life. You get what you want. You, know, you reap. You sow what you reap. You, if you want some uh, something, you'll get whatever that is to its full extent. And if your true will is in alignment with God's, I mean, you wouldn't have any you know, trouble. And you know, why why would you question things? I mean. Um, it's, it's just whatever people first started questioning God, you know, back in Genesis, you know, they're, it, it was almost uh, satirical. I mean, it, and when God questioned man, He made it so direct. You know, you really, you really can't get around it. And we certainly should want to not get around it, want to just follow what he said. So much better. <coughs> much okay. Um, 22 through the end of the chapter. You are therefore to keep all my statutes and all my ordinances and do them so that the land to which I am bringing you to live will not spew you out. Moreover, you shall not follow the customs of the nation which I shall drive out before you, for they did all these things, and therefore I have abhorred them. Hence I have said to you, you are to possess their land, and I myself will give it to you to possess it, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You are therefore to make a distinction between the clean animal and the unclean, and between the unclean bird and the clean, and you shall not make yourselves detestable by animal, or by bird, or by anything that creeps on the ground, which I have separated for you as unclean. Thus you are to be holy to me, for I the Lord am holy, and I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. Now a man or a woman who is a medium or a spiritist shall surely be put to death. They shall be stoned with stones, their blood filthiness is upon them. You see the exhortation here to obey the laws that he's given them and some um, reasons for that. What does he what does he use as a motivation to keep these laws? A reward for <laughs> Yes, the land. And he looks at that land in an interesting way. What has what is the land going to do? <laughs> yes. Who had the land who would the land vomit out? The Israelites, if they do what? Do not obey. Become like the people in the land that God was vomiting out because of these practices. When the Israelites entered the land, God spewed out the Canaanites because of these sins. 
Now what happens if they go into the land and they adopt Canaanite practices? The land will have a sore tummy and speed them up too. Exactly. You know, if a certain food, you know, disagrees with you, if some, some kind of spoiled food causes you to vomit, and you, you know, you get rid of all that after you've eaten it, do you go back and eat that food again? It'd be rather foolish. It's probably not going to be digest any better the second time. And, and the land will not tolerate, because of God's, uh, you know, being the owner of the land, them when they do these things. And so their standard is not to be the practices of the people of the land. What was their standard? The holiness of God. He was the one they were to follow. God separated them from the people. They were to make the distinction between the clean and the unclean. Verse 26, you are to be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy. I have set you apart from the peoples to be mine. That is such an applicable passage for us. The need for us to be separate from the practices and the mentality of the people around us and to make as our standard God and his holiness. There is so much temptation to just fit in with whatever is going on, whatever is generally accepted in the world around us. And he was telling them on, in no uncertain terms, you're separate from these people. I've, I've, I've given you a whole different standard. Don't be like them or the land will spew you out too. You are to be holy like I who makes you holy am. It's really a powerful passage to encourage that. And we just have to be more of the mentality of pilgrims and strangers here and not make as our model the lifestyle choices of those around us. Comments and questions on this? That's, this is a really good text, I think. <coughs> Why does he use um, the animals as his example of holiness? Well, at least it's an example of making distinctions okay. between clean and unclean as they are to make distinctions from their practices as holy people and the unclean practices of the nations. It seems to me like that may be the reason he would introduce because that Because it's here. so clear. Yes, okay. it's a clear distinction between clean and unclean, as there was to be a clear distinction between Israel and the pagans. And he's already said a lot about that back in chapter 11. Why is stoning transferred away? Because it's I don't know about that. Electric chairs wouldn't have been an option back then. Um, you know, I mean, stoning would be pretty effective. I don't know, Adam. Usually when we see someone being stoned, there are several people involved. Whereas I think, you know, it just takes one guy to start a fire, or, you know, one guy can build a gallon and contain someone else. And I, I mean, I'm not saying this is a definitive answer, but I've always suspected that it's because God seems to emphasize he wants the people to put them to death. And, and through stoning, you can get a lot of people involved in bringing that thunder. Interesting ideas. Good, good thoughts, sir. Basically the same thing. It's a community idea. And if, you, if you've stoned someone who you shouldn't, then all those who have participated are wrong and guilty. And if you have done what the Lord has commanded, then all of you have 
done what the Lord has commanded. I mean, so. It's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about the question, but that's a good answer. Chris was just saying it takes a village. <laughs> Thank you, uh, President Clinton. Well, there's also the idea of, especially in stoning, the people who were closest to the individual are the ones who were supposed to initiate. So there's this idea of, of follow-through and completion. You had other people helping you to do what was a very hard thing to do. That's a good point. Sarah? <coughs> Even though stoning is, to some extent, a bloody activity, one would presume, it's not like if you take your sword and run it through someone or cut off their head, that there's this blood everywhere. You stone them, and they're covered with rocks. I mean, it, it's not... More sanitary. You don't get to, I guess you could say, revel in glory in the blood. I mean, that's not the point of it. And so... But I think some people did it when a guy in Acts was stoned. Well, yeah. I mean, it was still possible. True, but they're not the example we're supposed to follow, oh, okay. I think. Okay. Could be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's interesting, too, is that I don't think you read of any prisons in the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> Definitely. I would agree with that. Why don't you? The, the acts seem to be dealt with by the people right away. Do you see a difference in the purpose of this uh, punishment versus the purpose that we often have in terms of how we treat criminals today? <coughs> What's the modern idea of what you're trying to do? Rehabilitate. Rehabilitate. What's the idea back here? Justice. Yes. God's object was to punish the criminal and to satisfy the justice that had been outrageously violated. I, I would agree with that. I don't know that there's a biblical model for imprisonment. That's really not, that's not the kind of punishment. I mean... You just see the punishment as being much more direct. <coughs> and the purpose was to do the just and right thing. In reading, a lot of us have been doing this new reading program through the Bible. And this last week we were going through the first, almost the first half of Genesis. And when we got to uh, chapter 9 at our house, we really paid attention to chapter 9 and verse 6. When God's making his covenant. And he ex he's explaining whoever sheds the blood of man by man, his blood shall be shed. Because he, God made man in his image. You know... The way that we view prisoners today, the focus is on the person who did the wrong instead of the person who was wrong. Instead of looking at this person either killed or seriously maimed someone who was made in the image of God, they did not look at that person like they were created in the image of God. The focus isn't on the wrong, it's on the wronger. Good point. We can see some real flaws in the mentality behind how we look at those things. Other thoughts, comments, questions on 20? Shane? I've been pondering this since I started sitting where I came to your house last week. But I thought about how simple it was before man sinned. How simple it was. And then when man sinned, 
man has a sin, we probably wouldn't need Leviticus. Leviticus is mostly dealing with atoning for the sins or being atoned for. And if man hadn't sinned, then we wouldn't need this. And somebody brought the point before, sin complicates things. It's because of sin that we have this. It's because of sin that Christ died. And it was because of sin that all the sacrifices were having to be made. Good point. Other thoughts? Jeff? There, in the Old Testament, and also now, you know, you settled the dispute by blood. And in the past, Christ wasn't in the Old Testament. <coughs> and so you, you couldn't turn to anything but the blood of the person, you know, who was sinned. And that's, that's where the concept of Christ, you know, makes it complete. You know, we, we wouldn't have what we have now if we didn't have, you know, their strict rulings back then of, you know, taking the person's life. Now, now we just give it all to Christ. And uh, it's, it's complete and, you know, it's perfect. And it, there's a direct separation between the old law and the new, the new law. Why, why there had to be multiple. Yeah, the sacrifice in the Old Testament really foreshadowed how Christ could be the perfect sacrifice and take our place and bear our punishment. Not that it matters a whole lot. But does stoning really just entail throwing rocks? <coughs> I assume so. What, uh, <laughs> what else would you think? To kill them before you stone them or something? No, I don't know. I just, I mean, was it multiple or did they just drop big rocks? I assume multiple. <laughs> well, like like with Stephen, yeah. there was a group of people that threw rocks until he was dead. I assume that's what this is. Huh? Yes. It doesn't seem like a very humane way to kill people. Like, we were talking in school yesterday about how some states have, like, changed their ways of killing people to try to be more humane and, like, kind to the criminals or whatever. And, I mean, it kind of makes you see that this is really serious and we're not <coughs> humane, we're trying to get rid of the yeah, I mean, sometimes we are more, uh, I don't know, we have sort of a misplaced humanitarianism. You know, we are more concerned about, you know, being sensitive to the psychology or whatever of the criminal than we are with holiness and justice and righteousness. And the fact that it is a great crime to not punish sin. What is that passage? And now it's just escaped me somewhere. Where is it in Proverbs? Where there it speaks about. Um, I think it, there's a proverb that talks about, you know, the the evil of of leaving sin unpunished. There's something about. I don't know. Something about Ecclesiastes eight. No, but that's another one. No, there's something. I think it's in Proverbs where. I can't quite come up with it, but where it talks about the idea of the, the evil of, of not punishing the, the evil. I'll have to go back and look at that. Isn't that what he does at the beginning of this chapter where he talks about being silent? Yes. It, it's really, it is wrong not to punish wrong. That is an evil. All right, other thoughts on 20? <coughs> Why is 27 dropped right at the very end? I do not know. I mean, it seems totally out of place. 
I, yeah, I don't have a real answer to that. I mean, maybe. Um, I, I don't know exactly what to do with this. But you've got the first little section about the treason, about the offering your children to Molech. And then you have sort of uh, an inclusio or a chiasm because you've got the mediums and spiritists in 6 and 27, and then you have the be holy in 7 and 26, and uh, then you have the laws in between. So you often have that in these passages. Okay. Exactly what to do with that, I don't know. But it, is, it sort of stands out here. Yes. Somebody got a better answer? Well, <laughs> 6 and 27 connect, and 7 and 26 connect. And then everything in so you have A, B, laws, B, A. Do you see that? And it's pretty, it's really, it's pretty it's strong. But that's common. You've commonly got, you sort of come back and you touch the notes at the end that you touched <coughs> at the beginning in reverse order. Yeah, that's a really common thing. Kind of a poetic device or something. So the ends are just an, uh, an exaggerated statement of the middle. Yeah, or at least they connect. I mean, they call it incl- inclusio. Okay. That you, you all of this, sec- you kind of almost bound the section right. by these statements that are parallel. But I don't, I don't know how to, how to explain all that or what the purpose is, I guess. Okay. Any more questions I can't give a good answer to? <laughs> Sarah, you've usually got some. You probably already talked about this last week. We'll just say I did, but go ahead. Being cut off is what? Well, that's a good question. Because, <laughs> I mean, I, I had thought of it as, you know, this is, this is in the wilderness, and if you're cut off from the people, you're sent out into the wilderness, which basically means chances are you're going to die, as opposed to, like, a direct death by stoning. But... I don't have a good answer. I think cutting off would at least involve sending them out. Yeah, uh, but whether or not it involves society. more than that, I'm not sure. Ostracized from society, at least. Right. Somebody got a better answer? I don't have an answer. Do we ever have an example of somebody getting cut off from the people getting set off? I don't know that it ever says cut off in connection with lepers. I don't think it does. Although it, ha- you know, a similar thing. But I don't know that we do. Maybe we do. I don't know. I'm thinking of Cain, but that was before the law was given. Right. But again, I don't know that it uses cut off. No. Is that is uh, the blind man in John excommunicated? Yeah. And that was his fear, but it doesn't describe what that. Or ex synagogue in that case. Yeah. <laughs> Dismember. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now you're going out on a limb. Well, I, I read that occasionally from people. I've heard that. You know, we dismembered this person. <laughs> you have to read that just with the right thinking in mind. <laughs> I have actually read that from people who were saying that. Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, why don't we proceed to 21? I don't think there's going to be any more questions I can answer on this passage, so...
And uh, let's start into 21 that before we take our break. Can we, is anybody, everybody okay with that? Is anybody about to die? <laughs> That's bad. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, here's the thing. If you, I mean, you all have done really well so far. I know you're tired, some of you. Feel free to stand up and stand behind everybody or whatever. It will help you wake, stay awake if uh, that's the case. And so <coughs> to do that. That's, I give it, and when I teach, uh, sometimes people need to stand up. So. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, chapter 21 and 22 deals with the standards that are given to those who represent God to the people, the priests and the high priests. And there are special responsibilities and special duties for these men. Uh, They have to have a greater degree of holiness and sanctity in their character and conduct. And we'll think a little bit as we go through these passages that there's sort of a parallel. Now, we don't have a separate priesthood today. You know, in fact, there's maybe two parallels. In a sense, we ought to apply these passages to ourselves because the priest today is us. But I think there's also a sense in the New Testament of where those who are our elders or pastors and even the deacons have maybe a greater degree of um, expectation of their, of their conduct and some things about them. And... Uh, so there might be parallels with like 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, at least in, in concept. But would somebody read chapter 21, verses 1 to 9? Then the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to him, No one shall defile himself for a dead person among his people, except for his relatives who are nearest to him, his mother and his father, and his son and his daughter, and his brother, also for his virgin sister, who is near to him, because she has no husband. For, for her he may defile him. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people, and so profane himself. They shall not make any baldness on their heads, nor shave off the edges of their beards, nor make any cuts in their flesh. They shall be holy to their God, and not profane the name of their God. For they present the offerings by fire to the Lord, the fruit of their God, so they shall be holy. They shall not take a woman who is profane by holiday, nor shall they take a woman divorced from her husband, for he is holy to his God. You should consecrate him, therefore, for he offers the food of your God. He should be holy to you, for I, the Lord, who sanctifies you, am holy. Also, the daughter of any priest, if she profanes herself by harlotry, she profanes her father. She shall be burned with fire. Okay. The standard for the priests. You have really three different things here. In one through six, what's the, uh, what's the area we're dealing with? Yes, and the various, uh, the contact with the dead, the mourning for the dead, and so forth. Um, There was a lot of restriction on what the priest could do in connection with those who died. wonder why. Why would death, the death of somebody, have anything to do with the priests? Why would they be restricted from having contact with dead people? All right. Contact body makes you unclean. <clears throat> Can you think about that more broadly? Death is associated with sin. Absolutely. Death is the penalty for sin, so contact with death defiled you. And so they were not allowed to defile themselves for a dead person except for who? 
immediate family, basically. Um, they, they would not be allowed, it seems to me, to touch them or to go to the funeral, you know, that kind of thing. They're not allowed to, uh, to be involved with the, the, the death uh, service uh, for anyone except a close relative, uh, immediate family, basically. Um, because they are holy. They present the offerings to God, so they've got to maintain a higher standard of holiness. They also are not to involve themselves in any pagan mourning practice. Verse 5, baldness on their heads, shaving the edge of their beard, making cuts in their flesh. Um, even ordinary Israelites, back in chapter 19, were not to engage in those things. How much less the priests that present the offerings to the Lord. Um, comments or questions on that section through verse 6? Interesting that in verse 2, verse 3, that he can defile himself for his virgin sister, so that, it, that once she is married, he's in one sense not his sister anymore, that she's now in a different family. Absolutely. It would be her husband's family that would take responsibility for her burial. That's a very good point. Got a bunch of people. Shane, James, Sarah. I have a question. No, Shane uh, first. Okay, James. <laughs> Excellent question. There are two schools of thought. One is, he's not allowed to defile himself for his wife and to marry her. A second is, that that would be automatically understood. <laughs> Those go opposite directions. Understood. understood that he could for his wife. Oh, okay. Either he didn't even have to mention the wife because that would be understood that he could, or because he could for his blood relatives but not for his wife. Those are two opposite understandings. I have a slight preference, but I won't give it So yet. which one is the safe one? <laughs> I'd say that he could because uh, to become one flesh, he'd be defiling himself for himself. Anyway. Okay. So I don't think it would be a problem. Anybody else want to extend on that discussion? I sort of have the opposite <coughs> viewpoint, but I those are good points. You're outvoted. Alright. <laughs> now Shane. I want to know Me too. in verse one it talks about uh uh you should not yourself to the dead among his people. You said that it means you should not touch the dead body. Does that also mean you cannot mourn for them, unless you're close family? I think include, personally, that you could not go through the funeral service. I don't think it means you can't be sad for them, but I think it means you can't participate in the burial ceremony. Verse 11, we'll talk about the high priest, nor shall he approach any dead person, nor defile himself even for his father or his mother. 
Touch or I think involve himself in the funeral. Where is the passage that talks about the ways of becoming defiled with a dead body? I mean, if you were to walk over an unmarked tomb, if you're to go into a house that had a dead body. I can't tell you that. Isn't that the Nazareth stuff in Deuteronomy? That might be. Number six is the Nazareth stuff. Or maybe it is. It just seems like there's somewhere that explains part of what that means to defile over death. Yeah, there probably is. All right, other questions and comments through 21.6? Sarah? Why do you lean towards the other way? Because he doesn't specify the why. I have a question about verse <coughs> the, the context is, is you know, these pagan practices during mourning. Uh, I've heard lessons where that's applied outside of mourning, uh, where the, they'll tie it in to the New Testament and talk about cutting on our body and all kinds of things like that today. But, you know, I mean, the problem with that is, is there any New Testament passage that indicates that these things are also <clears throat> prohibited? If there was, then we ought to prohibit them. I don't think there is. And I worry every once in a while that we are all tempted to be arbitrary on what we import from the Old Testament. We sort of import the things that agree with what we think it ought to be, not necessarily following the New Testament guidelines about that. And so, I mean, a lot of people might, you know, prefer to uh, say, uh, perhaps exclude tattooing or something like that, because we would have some cultural reasons to exclude that. Um, we probably wouldn't turn around and exclude a woman <coughs> piercing her ear. Maybe we would, but most people probably wouldn't, although that might be some sort of a cutting as well. But, but... I think more broadly, I, I don't know how I would prove that this passage is, is a prohibition for us today. And I mean, you know, we don't generally prohibit, uh, you know, wearing uh, clothing of mixed uh, fabrics like that. Trying to figure out what that means might be more difficult. I mean, I think 1 Corinthians 6 might be a really good guideline for us, where he talks about the body being a temple of the Holy Spirit and that we should not desecrate it. What was the desecration in that context? Exactly. We are not to desecrate our bodies in <laughs> sinful ways, spiritual ways, you know, to join our body to a harlot, which would be anybody who's sexually immoral. Is, is a desecration. It's a dishonor. Uh, it seems to me like it's probably more that than some sort of physical 
marking or, or even harm to the body. I, trying to figure out how, you know, what to do with these passages in application, what about this one? You know, I don't think that we would see that, I, I think we shouldn't see that Christians as priests or even elders and deacons or whatever could not go to the funeral of someone other than a false relative. <laughs> I was going to apply that. <laughs> yeah. But, but on the other hand, maybe all Christians should not be uh, deterred from their focus on the Lord because of excessive mourning over the dead. You know, that, that for none of us should that be the primary focus. We ought to be focused on the Lord. Maybe there would be an application to that. Here's something else you might think about. A lot of Israel's neighbors worshipped the dead. And surely, if the priests couldn't even have contact with them, that would be an indication that the worship of the dead was not a part of God's pattern. Is, it, is there possible that there's a connection between 27 and this idea of worshiping the dead? Maybe, yeah. I mean, the witch at Endor, she, he was trying to speak to someone that was dead. Wasn't really worship, though, it was more uh, the idea of communication. communication but, right. but I guess the priest probably couldn't communicate with the dead. So they couldn't defile themselves with the dead, so maybe so. Well, I think this idea of losing my focus. I, I just have known people who lost all purpose in life because of someone's death. Yes. And, and for us, death is, you know, death is a doorway. It's not an ending. And I mean, here it's interesting that this is about a dead person among his people, among the people of God, is the way I was reading that. So, when someone among the people of God today dies, it's not a cause for making baldness on our heads and shaving up the edges of our beards and, cut, and making cuts in our flesh as a sign of mourning and, and utter depression or something. I mean, that's not the idea. Maybe stretching it a little bit, but that's mm -hmm. for Good me. point. Yeah, I agree. What does verse 4 mean? Um, he shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people and so profane himself. I think it's the idea of not going to, not having contact with the dead uh, in law. Not, not, I mean, he's been saying you can, you, a priest could defile himself for a, an immediate family member but not for an in-law. Mine says he shall not make himself unclean as a husband among his people. Oh, really? I have that as literally, but my translation said he shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people. I think that'd be the idea, as a husband. In other words, he's not to do it for his wife's family. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, okay. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. There was special attention given and time spent mourning for Aaron when he died and then Moses when he died. It just seemed like that once that was over, they got back immediately to business of hand. Good point. Verse five. What is what is the idea behind shaving the edge of your beard? Wouldn't we normally associate like 
as far as, there must have been some sort of a custom yeah. to sh do some sort of a shaving of the beard, but yeah, I don't Jesus know. Sideburns. But I don't know what it was. Does anybody know what kind of shavings they did on their beard as a morning custom? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. I was going to say there's a note going back that talks about uh, mutilating the beard. Which is <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> well, and weren't they supposed to not cut their sideburns or something? I have no idea. Like, well, I mean, if you look at an Orthodox Jew today, they've got this very long curl because they're not allowed to cut um, the sides of the hair. Maybe that would be from a passage like this. I don't know. <coughs> I'm trying to prove it, but that's fine. And you've got, I don't know. 1927, you shall not round off the side growth of your heads, nor harm the edges of your beard. So maybe that's where that comes from. Maybe that'd be the side growth of your head. <laughs> 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 you have long side growth of your head. <laughs> our, tra our translations have a way with words. <laughs> All right, anything else? All right, I think it would be good to take a break here and then we'll come back and work on 21.7. Take a break for about 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs>